Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talk series here at the Abbey. I got to sit down on the couch with Gina Moxley, writer and maker of The Patient Gloria, currently packing out the Peacock Theatre. If you are one of the lucky few who have a ticket and have yet to witness the performance, lucky you. Although perhaps press pause on this any time now and pick it up after you see the show, as I'd hate to spoil it on you. It is a sight to behold. In the week that the President of the United States declares it a scary time for young men, Gina talks about the lived experience of what it means to be a woman in this country, the medieval misogyny alive and kicking in the backyards of our recent past, and the first instincts of repressive regimes. Gina talks about finding the style of the piece, the quiet recognition played out on stage, magnetic cohorts, golfish memories, and the context of comedy. Enjoy this podcast. Gina Moxley with an X and a Y. Let us talk you and I about the patient Gloria blasting out to a sold-out peacock crowd who are on their feet by the end of it. Now, the whole play is terrifically smart and funny and outrageous in its audacity. How long have you patiently waited to write a play like this? Um, Thanks for all those compliments, Lisa. Uh, It's been kind of mulling away for... I'd say four or five years, probably. Now, I saw the films, The Three Approaches to Psychotherapy, and I thought, like, there's definitely something in there. How to, what, and how to kind of intersect with them. I didn't know. So I just kept looking at them, and then I asked Leave O'Donoghue if she'd work with me on them. Um, and because she's the same age as Gloria and we had this notion that I am now the same age as Gloria's daughter, actual daughter. So there was some kind of woolly idea that this was going to work somehow. Um, And then we went to Paris on a residency for a month to work on it. And it was just like, you know, emptying your brain all over the walls and you know, kind of looking at other forms of therapy, how we could physicalise it and all that. And there, when we were there, we met John McElduff, who's our director. Uh, Leif had worked with him in a dance film before. And then subsequent to that, we went to Make, uh, up in Anna McCarrick. And while we were there, we kind of interrogated it a bit more and we decided at Make that we would use recreations or reenactments from the films and then god you know i'm hopeless i'd be hopeless in a court case i can't remember (laughs) anything it's like oh when do we decide that anyway they decided leave and john i think like it's yours you should be writing trying to write things collaboratively is is demented so I still didn't quite know if I was going to be me. Uh, By then, I think we decided I would play the three men. So I just had always had this idea to make a list of the dicks I never asked to see. (laughs) Um, And it was very long, like it was pages and pages. So I had written that and then I started writing another monologue in, in... response to Gloria's feelings of guilt in the play and the films were made in 64 and released in 65 and I was thinking 1964 like I was about seven 
So I started thinking about like the notion of guilt as a child, like in a Catholic school where you're just making your communion and you're apologizing for sins. Like it's just bonkers stuff. So I started writing uh, a kind of monologue about going to a birthday party and committing the sin of gluttony. So then John is saying, just more of them now, we just need more of your stuff. And I'm going, oh, Jesus, I really thought I wasn't going to have to write that much. (laughs) So yeah, we kind of had this bag of material then. And I'd edited the film scripts and adapted them a bit, you know. Uh, It just took me ages to kind of understand the style of the therapy because I haven't a clue about therapy as you might kind of (laughs) notice from the play oh god very cavalier about it no but I was really trying to be respectful of the style of them and what they were trying to say then I kind of corrupted it after that but um, we just then began to kind of interleave things essentially and involved the kind of more physical aspects of it and then the music as well. Well when you what struck me when I watched the films was about the violation of say Gloria's permission and mm. um, her permission that she gave to, to take part in the films but also just about the ethics and behaviours of not only the therapists but also of the documentary maker it's obviously so relevant now. Yeah. I had never heard this term about frame violations before and it's essentially like there's a frame of behaviour that's acceptable or norm in that kind of therapeutic situation and anything outside that is called frame violations. So like they were just battering the place with frame violations. I mean the very notion of putting therapy on film is already a violation. Although, like, she was aware that that was happening. You know, she was meant for use in schools and colleges. And the uh, director-producer, Shostrom, obviously saw the commercial potential. You know, the kind of raunchiness of it. Um, And gave it a TV and cinema distribution. But I'd read a book by her daughter called uh, Living with the Gloria Films. And Gloria, she was a fairly pragmatic woman, you know, she just moved on. She died in her 40s, but they were made when she was 30. And I think we can overdose a bit on the God love her, it was desperate thing that they did to her. I mean, it was, but... But she was, know, she was she well adjusted enough. Yeah, yeah, she got over it. Like She tried to sue them, and it transpired that it seems that she did write, uh, sign some kind of a release form that covered everything. Okay. You know, but this, this is before that we were, you know, before yeah. any of this, you know, that we're yeah. so well used to it now. And it was the beginning of kind of reality TV, really. You know, putting someone's kind of pain up for somebody else's entertainment or something. And when you mentioned those frames of violation, like, so these... Um, three therapists are kind of showcasing their approaches, but they're also transgressing th- those those boundaries, right? So, like, are those films? It doesn't sound as if those films were held up for scrutiny afterwards. Like, they weren't. Um, they're still being used. 
I just got a message on Facebook from this woman who used to be a dancer and said, oh my God, I can't get a ticket for your show. Rogers is my favourite. I've looked at those films over and over and over and I'm thinking, Jesus, if she comes to the show and sees what I've done to her. But, but they, it sounded as if they were like best practice. They were eminent in their field. and They were, yeah. They had created each of the styles of therapy. You know, they were their original styles. And, I mean, the whole thing was a violation because Shostrom, the director, producer, he had been in therapy with Fritz Perls, one of the therapists. So that's already a violation. Shostrom was also Gloria's therapist. So he was kind of pimping her out to these other fellas. Shostrom's wife was Gloria's daughter's therapist. So husband and wife, therapists to a mother and daughter. Like, how did, you know, they'd say, like, how did the the main problem that she came with was, you know, that she was having sex and her daughter was asking about it. And it was like, where did that question come from? Who play, Who kind of goaded the other, like, did the... Shalstrom's wife say in my therapy with the daughter, the daughter is worried about sex. Like, it's just a cesspool, really. And it's not the same question, because I suppose when I was coming to the films, I actually thought it would be the same problem for all three. Um, and it wasn't, or at it least It was meant to be. Yeah. But they, well, in the second one, he just said at the beginning, Fritz Perl says in the Gestalt thing, that uh, he disregards most of what the patient says and concentrates on the non-verbal level. So it's like all of the gestures. It's like, what are you doing? What are you hiding? What are you... Like, it's the best crack to play anyway. It's like a steeplechase, you know? You're just like on the trot trying to watch everything that Leave is doing. I think she tried to come back to it with the third guy, but, like, he's coming on to her so heavily. Like, it's all very, like... I just don't see how they could be proud of that. Like no, no, no. There we go. If you transcribed the films verbatim and played it out, you couldn't keep up with the leaps of inappropriateness. And the films are so artificial in their presentation. And but at the centre, it kind of has Gloria lost in her insincerity. So when you, Gina Muxley, go back to mind the films for its theatricality, you must be conscious of reframing Gloria. And, and reclaiming her. Yes. It took quite a while for us to develop a style and how, how it would be obvious to an audience that we're in performance mode, like recreating mode. So we finally came up with the idea that we just play the introduction of each one and we kind of snap into it without it being a kind of nostalgia fest either. It was over the course of the show, I was very conscious that we give her a voice and that I, like, I just started writing this thing where she has this otherworldly knowledge about things. So it's like he doesn't know it yet, but he'll be nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. And that's like years hence. She'll be dead by then. So I just wanted her to have a kind of um, 
a god kind of thing that she's looking down on this and she's actually not worried about the fact that the films were shown or whatever but she just wants to get her spoken and to empower the women to come and not have them treated this kind of juvenile way that she was treated yeah she's metaphorically and physically above it yeah yeah exactly the women you share the stage with you mentioned them Leave O'Donoghue and Zoe Reardon unashamedly talented cast that opening with um, Zoe like playing the guitar she's I mean she great. a rock star she can just yeah. play the guitar like she's ringing a bell and and Leave um, who I'd never seen acting acting before is just so convincing and magnetic as Gloria she's never acted before because I'm thinking I've probably she seen her. She was in Lippy. Yes. Um, but there was no speaking. So it was primarily gestural and not dance, but like movement. Um, yeah, that's her first time. And then she was just recently in the Fringe Festival show, in yeah. some ways, playing herself. Playing herself uh, in her own show. Yeah. But that's her first, like, part, part. Yeah, she's yeah, extraordinary. She's absolutely fantastic. American accent, like the poise of her. She, talk about holding a stage, stunner. Yeah, yeah. You, you just were brought with her wherever she led you. Yeah, she's fantastic. And Zoe, likewise. Zoe just had a gorgeous show in the fringe as well. And like they're both magnetic, mm. you know, they're fantastic. But it's a gorgeous spread to be on show, on stage with them. And then to have the group of younger women. There was a master stroke of John McAdoffs, the director, because he went back, he lives in France, and he went back for his daughter's 18th birthday. And all her pals were kind of camping out in the house. So you had these photographs of all these young girls, you know, and their kind of loungy sleepwear kind of thing, just like lounging. And it was like, oh my God, that looks so brilliant. And he just said, well, maybe we should get some young girls. I was like, yeah, because that whole I remember section, now it makes sense in a kind of a matriarchal passing on the, mm. the history kind of way to the younger women. But we were, uh, well, I was having real difficulty in going like, who am I saying this to? Mm. Am I saying it to the audience? Like, how should this be done? But you're... I just have to sit down and say it when the girls are there. Yeah, it is. Um, it's kind of a beautifully framed picture. When you mentioned that Leave was the same age as Gloria in the films, when you look at the films, I look at Gloria and she looks much older than thirty. Mm. Then you transpose it to, I suppose, Leave, and you think, okay, I can, I can get thirty, and and then you see the young women, you know, uh, uh, sitting beside you on the couch, and yet what they might be eighteen, twenty, and you yeah. just think, God, the levels of uh, of sophistication on the stage as well you realize god they're, they're young yeah yeah i think they were a bit shocked as well you know by it all yeah yeah like the first day they came into the <laughs> rehearsals and i have the monologue about the dicks like they were just going what oh my god like they couldn't believe it and then when the silicone dick comes out of the drawer, they were just like scarlet for me. <laughs> it's so funny. Like, I've never like talked about dicks so much. I mean, dicks are not in my life that much. And then I was like, well, actually, they're everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Wallpaper of our lives. What I want to ask you is um, there's the Gloria character and there's the Gina character. 
And when you decide to share those personal private stories for public consumption, even though it's done on your terms in a very matter-of-fact uh, yeah. way, there are, are there vulnerabilities at stake? And, and where do you sit with giving that of yourself? Um, I don't feel in the least bit vulnerable, actually. I don't really know why. Uh, I just regard it... I mean, this sounds a bit sappy now, but... I regard it as a privilege to be able to say it. And just say, yeah, that's there now. How do you think, what do you think of that? And it's not like being victim-y or anything. It's like, this is our lived experience. Just saying, just saying. So I don't feel in, uh, I don't feel vulnerable, weirdly. And a lot of it is, um, it's just not my experience, it's friends' experiences, friends' mothers, fathers. You know, it's a, a lifetime of what it means to be a woman in this country and the repercussions of being a sexual being, a female, in this country and how that's kicked back uh, through the state, through the church through family through silence all of the time so i've never been good at holding my tongue well it, it feels that you're not looking uh, for sympathy and and you're not playing the victim no so that was why to deal not all of us has dealt with in a funny way but i think it's a much easier way to talk about things like that if you can be not necessarily cavalier about the information, but like I, I feel protected by that kind of persona, that kind of stand-up thing, and I think that ugh, like anger just gets no one anywhere. Anyway, you know that like if I was given out and crying about it, sure to be the worst night in the theatre that you could have. Does it take something from you when you when you're I guess I'm trying to get at it. They're not funny stories, but you're but but you're making you're kind of making them bearable. And I'm wondering, is there a cost if you went out every night and you told the some of some aspects of those stories um, in a very maybe in a, in a very honest way, like mm. with all the details that would pull sympathy from an audience. Like I knew it was a bold move to to deal with this. Yeah. Um, experience material um, and it was partly to do no it is it, it is a kind of a therapy without being too wanky about it but like uh, it was provoked by the the films you know and it just kept coming up and I thought well like this is the the, the stage for it like this works somewhere like I don't know quite how but uh, it should be said in here um, so I mean there's kind of a few family things that I had to warn my sister and she said oh, sure grand it's the truth like why wouldn't you say it you know and I think we've stopped ourselves saying things 
because we're afraid of what it might cost other people and possibly ourselves like in a professional way in a work way maybe it costs people things but like this is my show I can say what I bloody well want you yeah, know and it's your and truth I'm, and, and nobody's pushed me to to say it like nobody so it was my decision and it just feels I think it's great to have said it like it just feels like yeah damn it this happens like on such a scale that I don't understand why uh, people aren't up in arms and like when you see like this week in the states you know all that Kavanaugh what do you stuff. make of all that Kavanaugh oh, stuff oh god's sake but it's endemic everywhere and here's Trump saying it's a very hard time for young men in America like what that's it's disgraceful know, I yeah mean, it's just beyond the beyonds you know it's incredible how Kavanaugh is the victim in it all. Yeah. And, and much like the Fritz scene, it all becomes about him. I, I know the Kavanaugh thing is about his, I suppose, next job, but um, he's the victim and it's all about him. Mm. Uh, I mean, everyone, and also everyone probably knows his name quicker yeah. than hers. Yeah. But it's all about like reversing Roe versus Wade and, you mm. know, clamping down on abortion all over the States, all over Europe. The same Poland, you know, like all of those repressive regimes. One of the first things they always go for is reproduction rights. Straight in. And it's like, would you ever get your f off with yourselves, lads? Yeah. It's, so, yeah, it's just it's a daily, it's a daily dose of a bit of a nightmare, isn't it? You just think, where can this go now? Mm. But it's good in the show, actually. Older women in the audience is very curious, watching, nodding away. And there was a woman there the other night, and she just kept saying, yes. She understood it. What was I going to ask you? It, it seems that you may not have gone to therapy yourself. And no. I know, <laughs> yeah, I, I know so many actors who, who kind of proudly declare that they They've never had to do counselling, and and it's proportionally quite high on oh, my Jesus, tally. Here. I'd say a lot of us probably should. Well, I'm thinking, is it just because acting is like a therapy in itself, or or are they just my friends are quite well adjusted? I don't know really, because most people don't talk about themselves like in an acting situation, like if you're writing your own show. I've worked on several autobiographical shows with as in uh, director, dramaturg. So that's like therapy, definitely. Just sitting down, asking people questions and kind of, but that I see as kind of a therapeutic or therapy-like thing. But um, acting, I don't think it's a bit like therapy really. You don't think you have to reflect um, or inwardly a lot, I suppose, to know um, yourself well enough. What was, what made me curious about the Glory films was that notion of looking for authenticity and the the core, the kernel of the the me, who's me. But like that's mutable as well, I think. But that's a, a similar kind of thing in proper acting. Like that you'd be trying to get your character. Um but as far as that's concerned, I think there's a similarity. Uh, Therapeutic? I don't think so. 
Well, in true therapy style, can I take you back to how you began in theatre? Was there theatre in your blood? Was it? Did you uh, no, it? I went to art school and trained as a painter. And I was interested in theatre, but I lived in Cork and there was very little kind of like um, real theatre there at the time. It was musical kind of stuff. Um, and I moved to Dublin and I saw an ad in old in Dublin for team theatre. They were looking for designers and actors. And then you could actually kind of call into the office and talk to someone. And I went in and uh, this guy, Tim O'Neill, was the manager of the company at the time. And I lecture had a clue about design, but at least I could draw, you know, and asked him about the design thing. And he said, why don't you just audition? Like it's open. I haven't a clue. Just put your name down. I think there was like 400 stupid amount of people. But they did it in batches. We might have been eight people together, like for an afternoon or whatever. And I thought it was the best crack, like fantastic. And uh, Donal O'Kelly was one of them. Maya Doherty, Riverdance Maya, um, Jack Lynch. So anyway, got back, called back for the next one going like, oh my God. And the next thing was uh, a discussion because they did after, uh, after show workshops on that. And sure, I didn't even cop on that the moderator of the discussion was like just being a, you know, cat amongst the pigeons. I nearly clocked him anyway. It's in the course of the thing. He's talking about rape. What? How dare you? And then they gave it to me anyway. <laughs> That's what they were looking for. Yeah. So <laughs> I ended up, I think, out in Ballyfermot, like rehearsing away great. And then I heard the kids coming down the corridor. And that's seriously only when it landed with me. Sweetest Jesus, what have I done? So then stayed kind of trained with them uh, over maybe two years or so. 1980, I think we started. And what, um, what did theatre give you that your, say, fine art background didn't give you? Or what was different? Um, sociability, I think. Uh, I just didn't really have the discipline to go into a studio and work on my own. Um, I felt I could contribute more in a group situation. And then I started writing, so then I'm back into a room on my own. <laughs> it's like, what? Um, but I started writing soon after that. We got uh, Pally with a few people and Palm Boyd and myself did double acts. Um, so there's a gorgeous circularity to the fact that her show was in before mine and so she sent me in a photograph of the two of us in our swimsuits we had a double act called the goose pimples <laughs> flat and jet sam and uh, yeah it was really sweet so um yeah so i started doing um sketches and that through a big gang of people raymond Keane, donald o'kelly eamon hunt Rose Henderson, and we used to put stuff on late night in the project. 
street stuff, mother red caps, festivals and all that. And then I got a job with Rough Magic um, on Declan Hughes' play Digging for Fire. And they kind of mad, really. Uh, Siobhan Barker was general manager then and Lynn um, commissioned me to write a play which I thought was the gassest thing ever. Took the money, <laughs> didn't write. Well, I did actually. Wrote a desperate thing that Lynn Parker more or less said, you're a smother that now and start again. <laughs> so did that and wrote um, a play called Dante Dan. So, but there was... 90s I think. Do you remember I associate you with funny material and being funny and writing comedy do you remember you know a significant moment when you realize you could make people laugh and then also that you know that next step to writing it? I think I'd always done that even in junior school like I remember you had to write some essay about your mother, like in second class now or something. And I wrote it as if she was goldfish. And I knew it was just eejity, like, but the teacher was in kinks laughing because everyone else's mammies and, you know, making the brown bread or whatever. And it's like my mother's slithering out of bed <laughs> like a goldfish. But then I suppose I'm, I shifted schools a good bit uh, for various reasons in secondary school and then I think you just either sink or swim or you become the class clown like the master. And and do you, I suppose this is maybe the question I was trying to get at earlier, I suppose do you always kind of try to wring the humour out of your observations? You know, you grew up in a pub and I'm sure there are things that a kid shouldn't have seen and yet you could make it funny. I think it's the only way to make things bearable lost the time. You know, like, or listenable to, do you know? I think you could, that's, I think what I was trying to say as well earlier, that like, if it wasn't funny, I don't know how you could sit listening to some stuff. And Does it I change the memory of it? Um, I don't think so. Like my, one of the things in the show, my mother's advice to toughen. Um, and I think you need to, to, bear stuff actually it wasn't that unbearable at all but I think it's um, like a little bit of an armadillo kind of thing you know ah yeah you know whatever shirk it off yeah I suppose I come from a big family and I I remember clearly like in primary school just telling funny stories about the family yeah you know, and, and they weren't always funny, but somehow I shaped it so or that... true, probably. Yeah, yeah, it was inflated, <laughs> yeah. you know, just to get the laugh. Yeah. Um, and I, I think about that often because I suppose then you're... Uh, I suppose you're... They think, it's going, they think your home life is one way. Do you know yeah. that kind of yeah, way? And, yeah. you're and you're making it and you're building yeah. it. And then, yeah. um, so I guess, yeah, um, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in that shaping of a memory or how you can change the story to make it funny and what that... I suppose it does to the truth of it or something. Yeah, I, don't, I think it depends what context it's used in as well. You know, uh, I don't feel I've changed the memory of things, but through their collation, they gather a, a bigger meaning or a bigger strength or something. 
So when they're seen in context of other people's experience, like like the I remember bits, you know, that some of them are funny. Um, funny because we were so ignorant and stupid and like some of them are a bit glib kind of gas you know the having your period as a hypnotist but like it was a bit of a surprise you know and then the next breath then you're talking about your friend scrubbing her Volvo with the Brillo pad you know that was also happening you know so it's all part of the same experience of teenage girls in this country at that time and no doubt continues on and I think uh, the experience of an audience member um, I suppose I it would have been a different experience had you done it differently in, in that I suppose uh, you could have emotionally manipulated the audience sometimes I'm at, at shows and I just feel yes. a bit blackmailed or something yeah, and oh. you're being steered Yes, I really r- resent that yeah, yeah, me too. I feel emotionally manipulated. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, and I question, you know, again, that kind of... The use of that. Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah. I do too. And, like, I had um, I had a lot of um, soul-searching, really, about using that section. But when John came up with the idea of having the younger women present, that, that makes such sense. Because they genuinely had no idea what I was talking about some of the time, you know. But that's one of the things, like I'm 61, and you just think, God almighty, this sounds medieval, some of it. You know, that what happened over my lifetime, say. So sometimes it's good to see that, like, actually it does get a bit better. It's small bit, but, you know. Um, there, there was a lot of stuff cut out of that, but one of the ones was, as a kid, in the car park of our pub, this farmer used to have a car and a, a trailer for pigs, but he'd only allow his wife be in the trailer. She wasn't allowed to be in the car. Yeah, and she'd stand out there with the pigs in the dark while he was in drinking. Like, that's medieval, you know. Yeah, for a young woman to hear that, yeah, that doesn't and it seems far fetched. Like, what? Like, oh, yeah. yeah, it does feel it does feel like the past is a foreign country. Yeah, yeah, but like it's so difficult to believe that that could have happened like fifty within, years ago. within our lifetime. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, On that too, you know, no, no. I was thinking. Yeah. I think when you mention your age and you've been, I suppose, working in this industry for, I don't best part forty, 40 years. years. Did you know, I suppose, what you were getting yourself into? Lisa, there is no plan. I haven't a clue what's happening next <laughs> week, let alone anything else. No, um, I just have never kind of figured it out, really. Um, How do you sustain yourself in the quiet times? It was great times? difficulty. With great Sincerely? Difficulty. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, you learn to be very frugal. Uh, yeah, like tipping away, like holding on tight. But like, I wouldn't be a natural for like a Sean the Gate or here even, you know. So like, I'd be uh, more the dead center, the pan pan, 
ended the football pitch, you know, it's like, um, and my God, I've traveled the world with both of them, like fantastic opportunities and that. Um, yeah, like, I, I, I'm well, so I a very frugal person anyway, I don't want much, like. I'm not even thinking materialistically, I'm thinking um, even in a mental health way, you mm. know, I mean, actors, are, are great when they're working, but yeah. it's it's, it, it's oh, really right. the training should be about when you're not working. Absolutely, absolutely. I guess I'm lucky that um, I do writing as well, and also in the past, I don't know how many years, six or so maybe, have started directing, which I'd wanted to do for a good long time. Um, but it's kind of a weird thing, like I wasn't going to go to the Lear to become a director. I mean, I don't know if it was even there at that point when I started. Um, but I'd kind of mooched around at it for a while and then it just kind of happened with Sonia Kelly and Stephanie Breisner and a few more since. Um, and I bloody love that. Like, that is just great, great. It seems to me that, I suppose, well, certainly you wouldn't need the training because you would have had so much experience under your belt. Now, this isn't a, a Sophie's Choice kind of question, but you're a theatre maker, you're a writer, a director, actor or actress? Which were actor, actor, I actor. say. Yeah. Um, but which are you most at ease with? And um, in which, I suppose, do you feel most alive when you get it right? Um, 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 um. God, it's, that's a very tricky one because any time you get anything right, you feel alive. Do you know? Uh, How do you know when you get it right? It works. <laughs> um, it does what you set out to do, I think. Like this week during this show, it was like, great, you know, from both perspectives of writing and uh, performing. Um, but I did Timmy Creed's show, Spliced, which is about hurling, GAA. And we did that uh, last summer as part of Cork Midsummer in his original club in Bishopstown. And like it would cut the heart out. It was fantastic. It, fellas who'd never seen plays. Men going, do you get a ticket there for Timmy's show? It's like they couldn't wait to be seeing it. So, like, you know, when you hit on something that's not karaoke, because like a lot of theatre to me is like karaoke. It's like, why would you want to do that again? I don't, I don't understand the choice to do it. Whether it's well done or badly done is almost immaterial. But it's like, what? Why? I just don't get the choice sometimes. And so to do something that hits on something original, I suppose, like Sonia Kelly's How to Keep an Alien, um, like it was such a gorgeous notion behind it and touched so many people and especially like it was beautiful timing with the referendum, the marriage referendum um, and all that. So, yeah, I think just a kind of a, a serendipity of the time as well kind of 
puts us in like a a really special kind of place and I think I couldn't have uh, foreseen this these developments at the moment in light of the Gloria show you know and when I'm talking about dicks like it's electrifying because you can see everyone going yep the world is awash with them yeah the patriarchy is full of dicks I'm telling you Mm. the wallpaper of our lives well, I should let you go, Gina Mosley, <laughs> and go kick against those pricks. Thank you very much, Gina. Thank you. Thank you.